0: I've got an exciting announcement for all you wonderful Send Me to Sleep listeners. Our back catalogue is now publicly available and completely free. You can listen to all our episodes, even the ones that used to be premium exclusives. This includes voice-only episodes and wonderful books like The Wizard of Oz, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, Around the World in 80 Days, and so many more, so please do go back and find a brand new story to help you get a great sleep tonight. Good evening. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the world's sleepiest podcast. I'm your host, Andrew. I'm here to help calm your mind and send you into a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading the final chapters of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Just a reminder that this particular story does contain themes of death and may be unpleasant to some listeners. So make sure you're comfortable with that before you continue listening. So let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften. As we settle in. For a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 8 Dead London After I had parted from the artilleryman, I went down the hill and by the high street across the bridge to Fulham. The red weed was tumultuous at that time and nearly choked the bridge roadway, but its fronds were already whitened in patches by the spreading disease that presently removed it so swiftly. At the corner of the lane that runs to Putney Bridge Station, I found a man lying. He was as black as a sweep with the black dust, alive but helplessly and speechlessly drunk. I could get nothing from him but curses and furious lunges at my head. I think I should have stayed by him but for the brutal expression of his face. There was black dust along the roadway from the bridge onward, and it grew thicker in Fulham. The streets were horribly quiet. I got food, sour, hard and mouldy, but quite eatable, and in a baker's shop here, some way towards Wallam Green... The streets became clear of powder, and I passed a white terrace of houses on fire. The noise of the burning was an absolute relief. Going on towards Brompton, the streets were quiet again. Here I came once more upon the black powder in the streets and upon dead bodies I saw together about a dozen in the length of the Fulham Road. They had been dead many days, so that I hurried quickly past them. The black powder covered them over and softened their outlines. One or two had been disturbed by dogs. Where there was no black powder, it was curiously like a Sunday in the city. With the closed shops, the houses locked up and the blinds drawn, the desertion and the stillness. In some places, plunderers had been at work, but rarely at other than the provision and wine shops. A jeweller's window had been broken open in one place, but apparently the thief had been disturbed and a number of gold chains and watches lay scattered on the pavement. I did not trouble to touch them. Farther on was a tattered woman in a heap on a doorstep. The hand that hung over her knee was gashed and bled down her rusty brown dress, and a smashed magnum of champagne formed a pool across the pavement. She seemed asleep, but she was dead. The farther I penetrated into London, the profounder grew the stillness. But it was not so much the stillness of death, it was the stillness of suspense, of expectation. At any time... The destruction that had already singed the northwestern borders of the metropolis and had annihilated Ealing and Kilburn might strike among these houses and leave them smoking ruins. It was a city condemned and derelict. In South Kensington, the streets were clear of dead and of black powder, it was near South Kensington that I first heard the howling. It crept almost imperceptibly upon my senses. It was a sobbing alteration of two notes, "Ula, Ulla, Ulla, keeping on perpetually. When I passed streets that ran towards it, it grew in volume. And the houses and buildings seemed to deaden and cut it off again. It came in a full tide down Exhibition Road. I stopped, staring towards Kensington Gardens, wondering at this strange, remote wailing. It was as if that mighty desert of houses found a voice for its fear and solitude. "'Ulla, ulla, ulla, ulla,' wailed that superhuman note. Great waves of sound sweeping down the broad, sunlit roadway between the tall buildings on each side. I turned northwards, marvelling towards the iron gates of Hyde Park. I had half a mind to break into the Natural History Museum And find my way up to the summits of the towers in order to see across the park. But I decided to keep to the ground where quick hiding was possible, and so went up on Exhibition Road. All the large mansions on each side of the road were empty and still, and my footsteps echoed against the sides of the houses. At the top, near the park gate, I came upon a strange sight, a bus overturned, and the skeleton of a horse picked clean. I puzzled over this for a time, and then went on to the bridge over the serpentine. The voice grew stronger and stronger though I could see nothing above the housetops on the north side of the park, save a haze of smoke to the northwest. west ulla, 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 cried the voice, coming, as it seemed to me, from the district about Regent's Park. The desolate cry worked upon my mind, the mood that had sustained me passed. The wailing took possession of me. I found I was intensely weary, footsore, and now again hungry and thirsty. It was already past noon. Why was I wandering alone in this city of the dead? Why was I alone alone? when all London was lying in state and in its black shroud. I felt intolerably lonely. My mind ran on old friends that I had forgotten for years. I thought of the poison in the chemist's shop, of the liquors the wine merchant stored. I recalled the two sodden creatures of despair who so far as I knew shared the city with myself. I came into Oxford Street by the marble arch, and here again were black powder and several bodies, and an evil, ominous smell from the gratings of the cellars of some of the houses. I grew very thirsty after the heat of my long walk, with infinite trouble, I managed to break into a public house and get food and drink. I was weary after eating and went into the parlour behind the bar and slept on a black horsehair sofa I found there. I awoke to find the dismal howling still in my ears. Ulla ulla, ulla ulla. It was now dusk, and after I had rooted out some biscuits and cheese in the bar, there was a meat safe. It contained nothing but maggots. I wandered on through the silent residential squares to Baker Street. Portman Square is the only one I can name, and so came out at last upon Regent's Park. And as I emerged from the top of Baker Street, I saw, far away over the trees in the clearness of the sunset, the hood of the Martian giant from which this howling proceeded. It was not terrified. I came upon him as if it were a matter of course. I watched him for some time, but he did not move. He appeared to be standing and yelling for no reason that I could discover. I tried to formulate a plan of action. That perpetual sound of Ula 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 confused my mind. Perhaps I was too tired to be very fearful. Certainly I was more curious to know the reason of this monotonous crying. I turned back away from the park and struck into Park Road, intending to skirt the park, went along under the shelter of the terraces and got a view of this stationary howling Martian. A couple of hundred yards out of Baker Street, I heard a yelping chorus and saw first a dog with a piece of putrescent red meat in his jaws coming headlong towards me and then a pack of starving mongrels in pursuit of him. He made a wide curve to avoid me as though he feared I might prove a fresh competitor. As the yelping died away down the silent road, the wailing sound of Ulla 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 reasserted itself. I came upon the wrecked handling machine halfway to St. John's Wood Station, At first I thought a house had fallen across the road. It was only as I clambered along the ruins that I saw, with a start, this mechanical Samson lying, with its tentacles bent and smashed and twisted, among the ruins it had made. The forepart was shattered. It seemed as if it had driven blindly straight at the house, and had been overwhelmed in its overthrow. It seemed to me then that this might have happened by a handling machine, escaping from the guidance of its Martian. I could not clamber among the ruins to see it, and the twilight was now so far advanced that the blood with which its seat was smeared and the gnawed gristle of the Martian that the dogs had left were invisible to me. Wondering still more at all that this I had seen, I pushed on towards Primrose Hill. Far away, through a gap in the trees, I saw a second Martian, as motionless as the first, standing in the park towards the zoological gardens, and silent. A little beyond the ruins about the smashed handling machine, I came upon the red weed again, and found the Regent's Canal, a spongy mass of dark red vegetation. As I crossed the bridge, the sound of Ula Ula ola Ulla ceased, it was, as it were, cut off. The silence came like a thunderclap. The dusky houses about me stood faint and tall and dim. The trees towards the park were growing black. All about me, the red weed clambered among the ruins, writhing to get above me in the dimness. Night, the mother of fear and mystery, was coming upon me. But while that voice sounded, the solitude, the desolation, had been endurable. By virtue of it, London had still seemed alive, and the sense of life about me had upheld me. Then suddenly, a change, the passing of something... I knew not what, and then a stillness that could be felt, nothing but this gaunt quiet. London about me gazed at me spectrally, the windows in the white houses were like the eye sockets of skulls, about me my imagination found a thousand noiseless enemies moving Terror seized me, a horror of my temerity. In front of me, the road became pitchy black as though it was tarred, and I saw a contorted shape lying across the pathway. I could not bring myself to go on. I turned down St. John's Woods Road and ran headlong from this unendurable stillness towards Kilburn. I hid from the night and the silence until long after midnight in a cabman's shelter in Harrow Road. But before the dawn, my courage returned, and while the stars were still in the night sky, I turned once more towards Regent's Park. I missed my way among the streets and presently saw down a long avenue, in the half-light of the early dawn, the curve of Primrose Hill. On the summit, towering upon the fading stars, was a third Martian, erect and motionless like the others. An insane resolve possessed me. I would die and end it and I would save myself even the trouble of killing myself. I marched recklessly on towards this titan, and then, as I drew nearer and the light grew, I saw that a multitude of black birds was circling and clustering about the hood, and that my heart gave a bound, and I began running along the road. I hurried through the red weed that choked St Edmund's terrace I waded breast high across a torrent of water that was rushing down the road from the waterworks towards Albert Road and emerged upon the grass before the rising of the sun Great mounds had been heaped out upon crest of the hill making a huge redoubt of it. It was the final and largest place the Martians had made, and from behind these heaps there rose a thin smoke against the sky. Against the skyline, an eager dog ran and disappeared. The thought that had flashed into my mind grew real, grew credible. I felt no fear. Only a wild, trembling exultation as I ran up the hill towards the motionless monster. Out of the hood hung a lank shred of brown, which the hungry birds pecked and tore at. In another moment I had scrambled up the earthen rampart and stood upon its crest, and the interior of the redoubt was below me. A mighty space it was, with gigantic machines here and there within it, huge mounds of material and strange shelter places, and scattered about it, some in their overturned war machines, some in the now rigid handling machines, and a dozen of them, stark and silent and laid in a row, were the Martians, dead, slain by the putrefaction and disease bacteria against which their systems were unprepared, slain as the red weed was being slain, slain after all man's devices had failed by the humblest things that God, in his wisdom, has put upon this earth. For so it had come about, as indeed I and many men might have foreseen, had not terror and disaster blinded our minds. These germs of disease have taken toll of humanity since the beginning of things, taken toll of our pre-human ancestors since life began here. But by virtue of this natural selection of our kind, we have developed resisting power. To no germs do we succumb without a struggle, and to many, those that cause putrefaction in dead matter. For instance, Our living frames are altogether immune. But there are no bacteria in Mars, and directly these invaders arrived. Directly they drank and fed. Our microscopic allies began to work their overthrow. Already when I watched them, they were irrevocably doomed, dying and rotting, even as they went to and fro, it was inevitable. By the toll of a billion deaths, man has bought his birthright of the earth, and it is his against all comers. It would still be his were the Martians ten times as mighty as they are, for neither do men live or die in vain. Here and there they were scattered, nearly fifty altogether, in that great gulf they had made, overtaken by a death that must have seemed to them as incomprehensible as any death could be. To me also at that time this death was incomprehensible. All I knew was that these things had been alive and so terrible to men, were now dead. For a moment I believed that the destruction of the Senaturib had been repeated, that God had repented, that the angel of death had slain them in the night. I stood staring into the pit, and my heart lightened gloriously, even as the rising sun struck the world to fire about me with its rays. The pit was still in darkness. The mighty engines, so great and wonderful in their power and complexity, so unearthly in their tortuous forms, rose weird and vague and strange, out of the shadows towards the light. The multitude of dogs, I could hear, fought over the bodies that lay darkly in the depth of the pit, far below me. Across the pit on its farther lip, flat and vast and strange, lay the great flying machine with which they had been experimenting upon our denser atmosphere when decaying and death arrested them. Death had come not a day too soon. At the sound of a cawing overhead, I looked up at the huge fighting machine that would fight no more forever. At the tattered red shreds of flesh that dripped down upon the overturned seats on the summit of Primrose Hill, I turned and looked down the slope of the hill, to where, and hallowed now in birds, stood those other two Martians that I had seen overnight, just as death had overtaken them. The one had died even as it had been crying to its companions, perhaps it was the last to die, and its voice had gone on perpetually until the force of its machinery was exhausted." They glittered now, harmless tripod towers of shining metal in the brightness of the rising sun. All about the pit, and saved as by a miracle from everlasting destruction, stretched the great mother of cities. Those who have only seen London, veiled in her sombre robes of smoke, can scarcely imagine the naked clearness and beauty of the silent wilderness of houses. Eastward, over the blackened ruins of the Albert Terrace and the splintered spire of the church, the sun blazed dazzlingly in the clear sky, and here and there some facet in the great wilderness of roofs caught the light and glared with a white intensity. Northward were Kilburn and Hampstead, blue and crowded with houses. Westward the great city was dimmed, and southward, beyond the Martians, the green waves of Regent's Park, the Langham Hotel, the dome of the Albert Hall, the Imperial Institute and the giant mansions of the Brompton Road came out clear and little in the sunrise, the jagged ruins of Westminster rising hazily beyond. Far away and blue were the Surrey Hills, and the towers of the Crystal Palace glittered like two silver rods The dome of St. Paul's was dark against the sunrise, and injured, I saw for the first time, by a huge gaping cavity on its western side. And as I looked at this wide expanse of houses and factories and churches, silent and abandoned, as though of the multitudinous hopes and efforts, the innumerable hosts of lives that had gone to build this human reef, and of the swift and ruthless destruction that had hung over it all. When I realized that the shadow had been rolled back, and that men might still live in the streets, and this dear, vast, dead city of mine be once more alive and powerful, I felt a wave of emotion that was near akin to tears. The torment was over. Even that day the healing would begin. The survivors of the people scattered over the country, leaderless, lawless, foodless, like sheep without a shepherd. The thousands who had fled by sea would begin to return, The pulse of life, growing stronger and stronger, would beat again in the empty streets and pour across the vacant squares. Whatever destruction was done, the hand of the destroyer was stayed. All the gaunt wrecks, the blackened skeletons of houses that stared so dismally at the sunlit grass of the hill, would presently be echoing with the hammers of the restorers and the ringers and the tapping of the trowels. At the thought, I extended my hands towards the sky and began thanking God. In a year, thought I, in a year. With overwhelming force came the thought of myself, of my wife, And the old life of hope and tender helpfulness that had ceased forever. 9. Wreckage. And now comes the strangest thing in my story, yet, perhaps, it is not altogether strange. I remember clearly and coldly and vividly all that I did that day until the time came that I stood, weeping and praising God upon the summit of Primrose Hill, and then I forget. Of the next three days I know nothing, I have learned since that, So far from my being the first discoverer of the Martian overthrow, several such wanderers as myself had already discovered this on the previous night. One man, the first, had gone to St. Martin-le-Grand, and, while I sheltered in the cabman's hut, had contrived to telegraph to Paris. Thence the joyful news had flashed all over the world. A thousand cities, chilled by the ghastly apprehension, suddenly flashed into frantic illumination. They knew of it in Dublin, Edinburgh, Manchester, Birmingham, at the time when I stood upon the verge of the pit. Already men... Weeping with joy, as I have heard, shouting and staying their work to shake hands and shout, were making up trains, even as near as Crewe, to descend upon London. The church bells that had ceased a fortnight since suddenly caught the news, until all England was bell ringing. Men on cycles lean-faced, unkept, scorched along every country lane, shouting of unhoped deliverance, shouting to gaunt, staring figures of despair. And for the food, across the Channel, across the Irish Sea, across the Atlantic, corn, bread and meat were tearing to our relief. All the shipping in the world seemed going Londonward in those days. But of all this I have no memory. I drifted, a demented man. I found myself in a house of kindly people who had found me on the third day, wandering, weeping, and raving through the streets of St. John's Wood. They have told me since that I was singing some insane dogrel about The Last Man Left Alive, hurrah, The Last Man Left Alive. Troubled as they were with their own affairs, these people whose name, much as I would like to express my gratitude to them, I may not even give here, nevertheless... Cumbered themselves with me, sheltered me, and protected me for myself. Apparently they had learned something of my story from me during the days of my lapse. Very gently, when my mind was assured again, did they break to me what they had learned of the fate of Leatherhead. Two days after, I was imprisoned it had been destroyed, with every soul in it, by a Martian. He had swept it out of existence, as it seemed, without any provocation, as a boy might crush an anthill in the mere what-notness of power. I was a lonely man, and they were very kind to me. I was a lonely man and a sad one, and they bore with me. I remained with them four days after my recovery. All that time I felt a vague, a growing craving to look once more on whatever remained of the little life that seemed so happy and bright in my past. It was a mere hopeless desire to feast upon my misery, they dissuaded me. They did all they could to divert me from this morbidity, but at last I could resist the impulse no longer, and, promising faithfully to return to them, and parting, as I will confess, from these four-day friends with tears, I went out again into the streets that had lately been so dark and strange, and empty. Already they were busy with returning people, in places even there were shops open, and I saw a drinking fountain running with water. I remember how mockingly bright the day seemed as I went back on my melancholy pilgrimage to the little house at Woking. How busy the streets and vivid the moving life about me was. So many people were abroad everywhere, busied in a thousand activities, that it seemed incredible that any great proportion of the population could have been slain. But then I noticed how yellow were the skins of the people I met, how shaggy the hair of the men how large and bright their eyes, and that every other man still wore his dirty rags. Their faces seemed all with one of two expressions. A leaping exultation and energy or grim resolution. Save for the expression of the faces, London seemed a city of tramps, The vestries were indiscriminately distributing bread sent us by the French government. The ribs of the few horses showed dismally. Haggard special constables with white badges stood at the corners of every street. I saw little of the mischief wrought by the Martians until I reached Wellington Street and there I saw the redweed clambering over the buttresses of Waterloo Bridge. At the corner of the bridge, too, I saw one of the common contrasts of that grotesque time, a sheet of paper flaunting against a thicket of the redweed, transfixed by a stick that kept it in place, It was the placard of the first newspaper to resume publication, the Daily Mail. I bought a copy for a blackened shilling I found in my pocket. Most of it was blank, but the solitary compositor who did the thing had amused himself by making a grotesque scheme of advertisement stereo on the back page. The matter he printed was emotional. The news organization had not yet found its way back. I learned nothing fresh, except that already in one week, the examination of the Martian mechanisms had held astonishing results. Among other things, the article assured me what I did not believe at the time. That... The secret of flying was discovered. At Waterloo, I found the free trains that were taking people to their homes. The first rush was already over. There were few people in the train, and I was in no mood for casual conversation. I got a compartment to myself and sat with folded arms looking greyly at the sunlit devastation that flowed past the windows. And just outside the terminus, the train jolted over temporary rails, and on either side of the railway, the houses were blackened ruins. To Clappen Junction, the face of London was grimy with powder of black smoke, in spite of two days of thunderstorms and rain, and at Clapham Junction the line had been wrecked again. There were hundreds of -of out-of-work clerics and shopmen working side by side with the customary navies and were jolted over a hasty relaying. All down the line from there, the aspect of the country was gaunt, and unfamiliar. Wimbledon particularly had suffered. Walton, by virtue of its unburned pine wood, seemed the least hurt of any place along the line. The wandle, the mole, every little stream was a heaping mass of red weed, its appearance between butcher's meat and pickled cabbage. The surrey pinewood were too dry, however, for the festoons of the red climber. Beyond Wimbledon, within sight of the line, in certain nursery grounds, were the heaped masses of earth about the sixth cylinder. A number of people were standing about it, and some sappers were busy in the midst of it. Over it flaunted a union jack, flapping cheerfully in the morning breeze. The nursery grounds were everywhere crimson with the weed, a wide expanse of livid colour cut with purple shadows and very painful to the eye. One's gaze went with infinite relief from the scorched greys and sudden reds, of the foreground to the blue-green softness of the eastward hills the line on the london side of woking station was still undergoing repair so i descended at byfleet station and took the road to maybury past the place where i and the artilleryman had talked to the horses and on by the spot where the Martian had appeared to me in the thunderstorm. Here, moved by curiosity, I turned aside to find, among a tangle of red frongs, the warped and broken dog cart with the whitened bones of the horse, scattered and gnawed. For a time I stood regarding these vestiges, then I returned through the pine wood, neck high with red weed here and there, to find the landlord of the spotted dog had already found burial, and so came home past the cottage arms. A man standing at the open cottage door greeted me by name as I passed. I looked at my house with a quick flash of hope, that faded immediately. The door had been forced. It was unfast and was opening slowly as I approached. It slammed again. The curtains of my study fluttered out of the open window from which I and the artilleryman had watched the dawn. No one had closed it since. The smashed bushes were just as I had left them, nearly four weeks ago I stumbled into the hall and the house felt empty the stair carpet was ruffled and discoloured where I had crouched soaked to the skin from the thunderstorm the night of the catastrophe our muddy footsteps I saw still went up the stairs I followed them to the study and found lying on my writing table still, with the selenite paper weight upon it, the sheet of work I had left on the afternoon of the opening of the cylinder. For a space I stood reading over my abandoned arguments. It was a paper on the probable development of moral ideas with the development of the civilizing process, and the last sentence was the opening of a prophecy. In about two hundred years, I had written. We may expect. The sentence had ended abruptly. I remembered my inability to fix my mind that morning. Scarcely a month gone by, and how I had broken off to get my daily chronicle from the newsboy. I remember how I went down to the garden gate as he came along, and how I had listened to his odd story of men from Mars. I came down and went into the dining room. There were the mutton and the bread, both far gone now in decay, and a beer bottle overturned just as I and the artilleryman had left them. My home was desolate. I perceived the folly of the faint hope I had cherished so long, and then a strange thing occurred. "'It is no use,' said a voice. "'The house is deserted. No one has been here these ten days.' Do not stay here to torment yourself. No one escaped but you. I was startled. Had I spoken my thought aloud? I turned, and the French window was open behind me. I made a step to it and stood looking out. And there, amazed and afraid, even as I stood amazed and afraid, were my cousin and my wife, my wife white and tearless, she gave a faint cry, I came, she said, I knew, knew, she put her hand to her throat, swayed, I made a step forward and caught her in my arms,